All right, so some of us in this room, I would imagine, have a characteristic, a part of our identity that for us might not be problematic in any way. Perhaps it's even a source of pride. But if we'd been born in perhaps another time or place, it could have been a real problem. While most estimates are that about 10% of the world's population share this characteristic, at times it's been looked down on with suspicion, with fear. People have been afraid of folks with this characteristic, believing they were evil. Perhaps they practiced witchcraft. Perhaps they worshiped the devil. There's some evidence to suggest that some people might have been excluded from community, or executed. Some people might have actually been executed because of this fear, and others experienced less grave, but still problematic discrimination. People thinking you were sinful, disgusting, maybe, maybe mentally unwell. In school, your teachers may have beat you. Your parents might have berated you. You might have endured painful attempts to try to change your condition, all to no avail. As this condition seems to be fairly fixed and constant throughout human history. So can anyone guess what condition I'm talking about? Yes, being left-handed. <laughs> right? Being left-handed. There has been a bias against left-handedness in many different cultures throughout human history. Uh, in the Muslim world, historically, in the ancient Muslim world, the right hand was for eating and the left hand was for wiping unclean surfaces. So if you were using it for something else, that was bad. In the Judeo-Christian cultures in the West, traditions arose throughout the Jewish and Christian uh, tradition that would associate the right with goodness and the left with evil. Okay? This crystallized in Christian thought, particularly if you remember the passage in the New Testament where God is separating the sheep from the goats. The sheep go to the right. The goats, the bad ones, go to the left. At least in our contemporary time, in our culture, that all is considered silly now, right? We wouldn't uh, probably think anything strange about somebody because they're left-handed, right? It's maybe a noteworthy curiosity, nothing more. Things began to change really particularly in the early 20th century, so by now we don't find this condition suspicious. Bless you. <laughs> but I start out asking about this left-handedness because it's an example of the power that social, cultural norms and beliefs can have influencing our understanding and our perceptions of reality and of people, okay? And I think as people of faith, this has real implications. We have to ask, how might our societal glasses the, the metaphorical lenses and frames that we have inherited for viewing the world, how might we, without even thinking about it, elevate those to the level of actual truth and allow our version, let, maybe that's our version of idols, right? Man-made forces, man-made constructs that we invest ourselves in, ultimately as a means of kind of making sense of the world making the world work for us. Well, this is the third teaching in this series we're exploring calling Smashing Idols. It's a series we're revisiting from a couple of years ago. 
And we started just by considering that very idea, that perhaps our need to elevate certain ways of viewing life over others, maybe that is our contemporary form of idolatry. And often, when we do that, we prioritize some views over others that can lead to systems of oppression, forms of oppression. I have the uh, definition we've been working with about oppression here. Pervasive historical political relationships between social groups. It includes prejudice plus power. That's what we're talking about. So two weeks ago, we considered the worldview of androcentrism. That means the centering of the masculine the centering of maleness. And we were considering together how that impacts how we understand the value of what's masculine versus what's feminine in particular cultures, and how that's even influenced the way we think about the gender of God. Okay, if you haven't heard it, you can go listen to it online if that sounds interesting to you. I'm gonna give a little disclaimer here. Some of this stuff is not stuff we're used to talking about in church. It can feel kind of loaded. It can feel heavy and intense, and it might even uh, cue up a little sense of like defensiveness if we are starting to I kind of ask questions around things that are traditions that have meant a lot to us, and I, I, I acknowledge that. And I'm also just gonna invite us to kind of pursue this conversation with as much openness and curiosity as we can, and try to like acknowledge those places where we're feeling a little intense, a little defensive, and try not to allow those, that feeling to kind of, kind of block the conversation and the inquiry that we're at least trying to open up together. Fair enough? All right, so today, we're gonna turn our attention to the lenses through which we view human sexuality. This seems like an appropriate way to begin LGBTQ Pride Month, right? And so today, we're gonna focus on the lens that most of us have been socialized into perhaps unknowingly, which I'm calling heteronormativity, okay? Uh, parents, FYI, I don't think we have any young kids, a little bit in the room, but just so you're aware, we are gonna be um, you know, speaking a little bit more explicitly around topics of human sexuality. So heteronormativity, what does that term actually mean? The Wikipedia definition is this, heteronormativity is the belief that people fall into distinct and complementary genders, male and female, with natural roles in life. It assumes that heterosexuality, and if you wanna start filling in the blanks on your sheet, you don't have to, but if, if that's something you like to do, you can. This is the first one. It assumes that heterosexuality is the only sexual orientation or only norm, and that sexual and marital relationships are most or only fitting between people of opposite sexes. Jason's bringing around pens if anyone's interested. A heteronormative view, therefore, involves alignment of biological sex, sexuality, gender identity, and gender roles. Heteronormativity is often linked to heterosexism and homophobia. Okay, that's a lot. It's a lot of content. Um, but as this definition makes clear, when we talk about human sexuality, there are actually multiple categories we need to consider, right? Now, I think most of us understand that gender roles are largely socially constructed, right? They can vary from context to context. So you may or may not have been in a church where it was considered a, a permissible role for a woman to preach. But here, we're all coming, understanding that in this context, we, we accept that as valid and good, right? So, so we, I think most of us get that gender roles 
can be kind of uh, different depending on the context you're in. So we're not really going to talk that one much about that. But these other three, I think, are very easy to confuse because they are linked, but they are not the same. And I don't think we always talk about them as much. Okay, so let's look at them. Biological sex. That's referring to how is the body actually engineered. Do we have male sexual organs, things that are clearly male? Do we have female organs? What is uh, determined at birth? That's, that's what we're talking about, biological sex. Then there's gender identity. How do we experience our gender? Do we feel like a man? Do we feel like a woman? Do we adhere in some way to how our society understands what it means to be masculine or feminine? And if, of course, our gender identity matches our biological sex, then that is cisgender. That's what's known as cisgender. If it doesn't, that's what's known as transgender. And finally, we have the category of sexuality or sexual orientation. Who are we attracted to? Same sex, opposite sex. Heteronormativity tends to collapse all of these into one. Okay, biological sex, gender, and sexuality become conflated, right? And in a sense, this is totally understandable. Statistically, the vast majority of human beings do have sex characteristics that match their gender identity, and they experience attraction toward the opposite sex. Okay, that is simply true, right? But for most people throughout history, these things have gone together. But in the same way that most human beings throughout history have been right-handed, but not all, how are we to think about those who don't fall in the statistical majority? Part of the problem, I think, is that heteronormativity will position all three of these categories as very clear binaries, right? There's two categories. You are male or you are female. Your sex determines your gender and your sexuality, and heteronormativity assumes essentially the binary should be heterosexual. Now there may be folks here, and I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot, even in a community that um, celebrates being fully inclusive, I recognize there may be folks who by and large, you know, believe that what heteronormativity puts forward is, is true. Maybe they think it's appropriate. And I get that. Certainly, in church, it makes sense. The heteronormative view does square nicely with traditional understandings of faith. In the Judeo-Christian religion, the Bible has generally been seen to bolster, perhaps even require, heteronormativity. Many Christians will point to Adam and Eve, saying that we see male and female created in the beginning as an archetype for humanity. And then throughout the Bible, men and women are presented as sexual partners. And that metaphor is taken to extend even to Jesus' unity with the church, depicted in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. So I get it. You can easily make the argument that the Bible affirms heteronormativity and the binaries it reinforces. But the question we have to contend with is, are sex, gender, identity, and sexuality simply binary? As medical science, psychology, and social science has testified in recent history, I think most of us in this room are aware things just aren't quite so simple. It's not so black and white. 
both scientific experimentation and social experience seem to testify to realities beyond the binary. Today, as we think about this lens of heteronormativity and how it functions to shape our understanding of sex, gender, and sexuality, I want to just focus on one of these three areas this morning, which I would argue is probably the one that most of us have thought about the least, both from a sociological and a theological point of view. But my hope is that as we consider the question of this one binary and how it functions, my hope is that the focus on it will open our awareness to all the other related binaries we also need to consider. Make sense? We don't have time to talk about all of them, but we're gonna focus on one. And the implications of, of that area of conversation, I hope, relate to the other areas of sexuality and even beyond that, how all of us, whether we're cisgender, transgender, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, however you identify, all of us need to think, I think, more openly about what it means to be a human in a physical body. So the question we're going to think about today more specifically as we consider heteronormativity and the experiences outside of binaries is what happens when people outside of, are born outside of the binary of the first category, biological sex. Folks who are not clearly medically male or female the condition that is known as intersex, okay? What do I mean by intersex? Well, it's true that the majority of human beings have been born throughout history and clearly easily identified at birth as some version of it's a girl or it's a boy. Not every parent has had the experience of hearing that declaration. Occasionally there are babies born for whom that call is harder to make. And these babies in recent years have come to be called intersex. So how common is it? It turns out that the question's a little tricky to answer, mainly because there's not yet a full medical consensus on what counts as intersex. It turns out there's actually a number of different biological genetic abnormalities that could result in sexual development that's not typically male or female. Okay, so some of these folks are born with external genitalia that is ambiguous. It's not clear one way or the other, okay? Other folks have conditions that are invisible at birth. So the outer genitalia looks one way, but the chromosomes don't actually match that gender. And down the line, there may be issues as the body doesn't produce the hormones needed for full development. So it, intersex is really an umbrella term. And depending on what you include in the umbrella, it's somewhere between half a percentage and almost 2% of humans. Even at its most conservative, the half a percent, that's more common than Down syndrome. It's more common than cystic fibrosis, which most of us have heard about, right? On the more inclusive accounting, the 2%, that would be about as common as having red hair or being a naturally conceived twin. So if you're feeling a little unsettled about what it means to be intersex, you're not alone, okay? Intersex people are troubling to many of us. Perhaps it's easier to think about gender and sexual orientation as being like maybe fluid. We could perhaps think those are just about socialization. Those are about choice. Maybe people decide to be trans. Maybe people decide to be gay, you might say. But the body itself seems pretty determined one way or another, unless it's not. Like many other variations of biology, some human beings just don't line up 
with the statistical majority. Some people are red-handed, some are left-handed, and some are intersex. So here, let's watch a video with a story of a woman for whom that's the case. Hopefully it will work. Our sound has been a little challenging. Okay, it looks I like wasn't. We, can we restart it? I knew it? I wasn't a girl either. For my entire life, although the people around me expected me to be a boy. All right, one more time. When I was born, my parents thought I was a boy. I wasn't, but I knew I wasn't a girl either. For my entire life, although the people around me expected me to be a boy, I was considered defective. It was fairly common for my father to tell me that I looked like a girl. For a long time, I thought if I was just obedient enough to my parents and to God, and I prayed hard enough, God would make me a boy. But um, like Pinocchio, I didn't feel real. Ordinarily, XY results in male, XX results in female. What I have is some of my cells have XY and some of my cells have just one X. Um, when you have that, you can turn out anywhere between normal male and female with something called Turner syndrome. It resulted in both of my gonads being a mixture of streak ovary and testis and that resulted in their failure. So I didn't have a normal male puberty. Um, I didn't get facial hair and things that men get. So I couldn't do the things that boys do. Intersex is a broad term used to cover a number of anatomical differences where persons' bodies um, aren't clearly male or female or have characteristics of male and female in the same body. And evangelicals are pretty afraid of some of these topics. So I realized that this was work that needed to be done, that no Christians were talking about this. When I went to the doctor, he didn't make any attempt to diagnose. He just said, okay, you haven't developed sexually. You don't have body hair. Your genitals aren't what one would expect from a 22-year-old male. And your primary problem is your overall health is poor because of depression and because of lack of hormones. And so I had to decide to go on testosterone take anabolic steroids and an exercise program to try to gain weight, or go on estrogen, which would help me gain weight. So I chose estrogen instead, and the doctors were good with that. One day I left work working as a boy and got on an airplane and went um, to have surgery and returned to work as a girl at a different company in a different state. Eventually, I went back to church, and after several years, I shared with some friends who were close to me um, my story, and they said that I had just ruined my witness or my testimony, and they didn't want to talk to me any longer. And although he was a friend, um, the pastor recommended that I remain silent. 
Historically, intersex has been not only silenced, but erased. If you didn't hear that last line, she said, historically, intersex has not only been silenced, but erased. Intersex people are often erased. Why? The truth is it's a combination of factors. In some cases, the erasure is medical. For several decades, at least, the norm has been that when a child is born with ambiguous genitalia, the medical community has opted to perform surgeries to cosmetically correct the problem. But the problem isn't just a cosmetic issue, right? Like Leanne, what's going on hormonally may not match the outer genitalia, so surgery at birth doesn't really correct anything. It only creates harm. And then there's the reality that a number of folks have conditions that don't show up until later in life. So one common intersex condition is known as androgen insensitivity syndrome, and it means someone's born with genitalia that looks female, but internally she has gonads that were trying to develop into testes and didn't make it all the way. So she does not have ovaries. She has no uterus. Often these folks do identify as women in terms of gender identity, and they're often raised as girls. But it isn't until they hit puberty and they don't begin menstruating that they come to realize they're not actually fully medically women. They are intersex women. So this is an intersex YouTuber, Lavelle. And in her video, she shares the story of wanting to join the US Navy as a young woman, except she was rejected. Because once she elected female, on her application, she went in for a medical exam and they ask her, when was your last menstrual period? And she has to explain that she doesn't have a uterus, she doesn't have ovaries, she doesn't have fallopian tubes, there is no way for her medically to be able to menstruate. And the Navy doesn't know what to do with her. We don't have a category currently for intersex. And so she was rejected and her dream had to end. These stories of rejection in the church and outside of church are tragic. And as people of faith, we might regret these experiences and hearing about them, but we also might feel at a loss for how to think differently. How do we think about what it means to be intersex theologically? Well, Megan DeFranza is the theologian in the video. And I'm going to be drawing from her work, which is really centered around thinking through these questions. As I just kind of open up a conversation today. And if folks are really interested in this, I, I highly recommend her book on the topic. So most Christians begin with Genesis when they want to think about this. Gender, sexuality, right? Let's look together real quickly at Genesis 1. 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Our first creation account in Genesis. And here we see male and female created in the image of God. 
A chapter later, we get the second creation account. And in this one is where woman is formed out of the side of man because, as it said, it was not good for the man to be alone. All right, Genesis 2. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So we have these stories, these founding myths that are meant to communicate something clearly about how humanity is connected to God. But is that story meant to establish heteronormativity as right and good? How are we to think about these first humans? We have to acknowledge they are unambiguously sexed, male and female. They are cisgendered, they are heterosexual. But are they to serve as the models of what it means to be human? Or are they simply the first parents, not the model for all humanity? What do they mean? Looking at the text alone can't answer that question for us. We actually have to go broader. We have to look both at how ancient cultures that produced and upheld these texts in the Bible thought about sexual identity and what else the Bible might say about it. So in studying the ancient text, both from the Bible and other sources in Jewish and Christian thought, as well as texts from other cultures, we have to note, it is clear, many people have long been aware that sex is not binary. It has long been known and testified to that biological sex is not a binary. There are norms of male and female, to be sure, but there are also people who fall outside of the characterization. This is not a new phenomenon that we have just noticed. Augustine is the early church father, one of the most uh, influential thinkers in history, lived around the third century, and he wrote this, although androgynes, who men also call hermaphrodites, are very rare, yet it is, it is difficult to find periods when they do not occur. In them, the marks of both sexes appear together in such a way that it's uncertain from which they should properly receive their name. However, our established manner of speaking has given them the gender of the better sex, calling them masculine. Yeah, he was very androcentric. <laughs> yeah, you can see the sexism at work there. But here you do see, he's saying, we know there's more than just male and female. The writings of ancient Jewish rabbis going back to the biblical era show that they understood this to be the case. They didn't use the language of androgynes or hermaphrodites. Those were Greco-Roman terms. They spoke about eunuchs. And in fact, they had multiple categories for eunuchs, okay? One of them was eunuchs of the sun, Saris comma, okay? What that meant was eunuchs that were discovered to be eunuchs at the moment the sun shone upon them, at the moment they were born, babies with ambiguous genitalia, eunuchs of the sun. Of course, in the ancient world, there was another category of eunuch, the man-made eunuch, Men who were born unambiguously male, but were castrated before puberty, which meant they did not have a typical sexual development. This was common practice for slaves. Those slaves were considered particularly valuable. And Jesus himself was clearly familiar with these terms and what they meant. 
because he used them himself. If we want to think beyond Genesis about how the Bible might talk about the binaries of biological sex, maybe it makes sense to look at what Jesus had to say. Okay, so let's look at Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, well, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others, and then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. All right, so I'm going to put forward, this is a super dense passage and very much a head scratcher, okay? We're not going to get to all of it. But we see Jesus points to men and women first and Genesis, affirming that most people will marry and that marriage is sacred and that something about the garden story is relevant for how we understand all that. So some might argue that Jesus is holding up heteronormativity, right? That he seems to be reinforcing it. I get that interpretation if you only read the first part of his response which most people do. But it doesn't end there. Jesus' followers are like, well, if you're going to take marriage this seriously, like tell us we shouldn't even divorce. Most of us are in arranged marriages. Maybe marriage isn't actually a good deal. And this is where Jesus says the most tricky part. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those it's been given. And then he talks about the three classes of eunuchs, the born under the sun ones, what we'd probably call intersex, the man-made castrated eunuchs, and some third version that's been debated throughout history what he's talking about, people who choose to live as eunuchs. It's historically a very tricky passage to interpret, but one thing I think we can solidly acknowledge and I think is relevant for us here, Jesus seems to be lifting up the eunuch as a model. Jesus is lifting up the eunuch as a model. Far from excluding the eunuch, we're saying the eunuch is not included in God's plan because the eunuch doesn't fall in the heteronormative binaries. Jesus is centering the eunuch, saying it would be better for folks to be like the eunuch. What's that about? It might be helpful to remember this was a very patriarchal society. To be a husband and father meant to be a power holder in society. But eunuchs weren't able to have that role. Similarly, women had almost no power, but the place they could have any was in relation to childbearing. Again, eunuchs could not bear children. In fact, some of the intersex conditions we've talked about, like the androgynin sensitivity syndrome, in Jesus' day, those women would have just been considered barren women. 
People wouldn't have even understood that they were intersex. But here, rather than calling those outside the binary of patriarch or mother outsiders because they don't fit, Jesus celebrates them. He even takes on their lifestyle as his own. For all intents and purposes, Jesus was living the life of a eunuch himself. Jesus was living the life of a eunuch himself. He denied himself the power and privilege that came with being a patriarch in a patriarchal culture. And likely that got him a lot of suspicion. People were probably gossiping about his status. Some theologians wonder if perhaps that's why he's bringing up eunuchs in this way, as a way to name out loud the slur that everyone's speaking behind his back, questioning his masculinity because he doesn't have a wife. He is suspicious as a bachelor, a celibate, unmarried man. That was not a cool thing. Not normally a good thing for a rabbi to be. This actually connects with a comic I just saw on Facebook this week, so I'm going to share it with you. This is a lighthearted take. Please do not take this seriously too much. All right, this is Jesus talking with the fictional superhero Wonderella. Look, I love humanity. Not sure why this is so difficult for you. It seems simple enough to me. And she says, but what about gender identities? And he's like, oh, what about them? You know, people who say gender isn't just whatever bucket or chromosomes or body parts you end up with. And he says, well, they have a point. I mean, look at me. Look, uh, why? He says, I was a virgin birth, Wonderella. I identify as male, but I don't have a Y chromosome. Think about it. <laughs> Think about it. There are actually people who have done work uh, that, that Megan DeFranza speaks about that actually put forth a hypothesis scientifically of if the virgin birth is historically accurate, how it would actually potentially yield an intersex human. So just putting that out there for you. A little food for thought. Whatever the identity of Jesus is, in our passage, he not only identifies with and celebrates the eunuchs, he seems to give us a clue for how to interpret Genesis and the garden and its role in helping us understand what it means to be human. Jesus reminds us that the move of understanding and celebrating God's creation is from narrow to wide. The move of understanding and celebrating God's creation is from narrow to wide. Jesus' inclusion of sexual minorities reminds us that throughout our tradition and throughout scripture, we move from the garden where there are two people, one male, one female, to a reality where more diversity in humanity is acknowledged and celebrated by Jesus. The trajectory of narrow to wide is reflected elsewhere too. In the law, there were prohibitions around the inclusion of eunuchs as well as Gentiles in worship. They were, out, they were considered outsiders to the community. Deuteronomy 23.1 says this, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. But later, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, we get a sense that God has something else in mind for the future, that the tent is widening. And we see it here in Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. 
For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. There I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. How many of us, persons who are not Jewish, have heard that? That we are welcome because God's, God has built a house of prayer for all nations. But how many of us were told that that also meant the eunuchs are centered and included too. That part is usually left out when the scripture is quoted. From Genesis to Deuteronomy to Isaiah, widening, widening of the tent. And then we have Jesus seeming to initiate that widening further, embodying himself, a life that is not defined by living a traditional male sexuality and the power and privilege that comes with that. But it doesn't end there. If we continue to follow the arc of scripture, the widening tent keeps widening. In Acts, we see the inclusion of foreigners and eunuchs fully lived out as the first non-Jew baptized into the church is a eunuch from Ethiopia. And then finally, we have the end of the story to come, right? A preview of where this whole thing is supposed to be going in Revelation, as John has this picture of the end of the story, a picture of a very, very diverse group of people united in worship of Jesus, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, worshiping together. So the story is not we're supposed to be going back to the garden, to some narrow view, version of humanity, the story of Genesis was never meant to be a prescription for all of humanity. Do you hear me? The first couple was not supposed to be a prescription. They were all, there was only one language in the garden. There was only one race. There was only one hair color. There was only one expression of sex, gender, or sexuality. But the picture throughout the rest of our story is of more and more diversity and more and more inclusion. God's family getting more and more colorful. God's creation in more and more dimensions. And all of it centered not around any form of hierarchy or oppression but around that which takes physical form and is embodied in Jesus himself. Inclusive, self-giving love. When we take Adam and Eve, or our favorite movie characters, or our own parents, or perhaps our own marriages, as a model of what it means to be human for all time, that's when we fall into heteronormativity. Hear me, friends. It is not wrong to celebrate cisgender heterosexual identity. I am here as a cisgender heterosexual woman, and I, I, I celebrate my sexual identity. I celebrate my marriage. 
It is not wrong to celebrate that. It is wrong to impose the binaries of sex, gender, and sexuality on all of humanity and oppress those who don't fit in those binaries. When we use the narrow heteronormative lens, often rooted in narrow understandings of what it means to be created in the image of the divine, to exclude or erase those who don't fit in the heteronormative mode, we miss seeing the full creativity of the God we worship. I cannot tell you how my understanding of the divine has been blown open by coming to know and celebrate the work of God in my queer and trans brothers and sisters and family members. We miss seeing the divine in all of the divine's beautiful dimensions when we fail to acknowledge the ways that the divine is expressed through our queer and trans and intersex friends. We begin to shape our understanding of God and God's creation in our own heteronormative image. And that is why I believe heteronormativity is a form of idolatry. I'm going to tell you a quick story as we end. When uh, my daughter, Junia, was a kindergartner, her teacher was uh, the first person I had known who identified as non-binary gender. Um, her teacher preferred the pronoun they rather than he or she. And this was a dual immersion Spanish-English school. So we use Spanish for all of the addressing of the, of the staff. And um, Spanish is a gendered language. So generally, teachers would be known as maestro or maestra. But uh, this teacher preferred maestre as a non-binary alternative. And so for sure, most of us parents of kindergartners kind of wondered how this was going to go. I wasn't the only parent who had yet to, you know, I'd, I'd heard about folks who were non-binary, but I hadn't yet really known anyone. Um, and certainly as parents, we're kind of wondering, how are our kids going to understand this? Can, can five and six-year-olds track with it? And it turns out they can track with it just fine. Junior's teacher helped explain to the class pretty early on, yes, most people are boy or girl, but but they were some of both, is how, is how her teacher named it. And when that's the case, they is the right pronoun. So that year, I was playing with my kids one day. We were just being silly, joking around. And I said something like, oh, how'd you get so cute to her? Or how'd you get so funny? I can't remember exactly what. And she said, oh, from you, mommy. And I said, oh, I don't think so. I mean, maybe a little bit. But I think it's mostly from God. I, I, I put it on him. And immediately, Junior looked at me and said, mama him him god is a him no mom god is a they <laughs> i don't think that my five-year-old was making or my six-year-old at this point was making allusion to the trinity <laughs> i think she was highlighting a facet of god's mystery a facet of non of god's non-binary reality that even her six-year-old mind had integrated and learned to interpret with full acceptance. She knew that God was beyond gender, neither male nor female, but somehow both. And she also now knew a person in her life that was that too, 
So my estuary is like God. And if they is the appropriate pronoun for her teacher, it must be the appropriate pronoun for God as well. Maestre, by their very presence in Junior's life and commitment to be themselves out loud, had taught my five-year-old, my six-year-old, a framework for which to receive the divine, free of the gendered baggage that many followers of God have struggled with for centuries. My child's non-binary gender kindergarten teacher had taught all of us something really important about God. Our queer and trans family members have been given unique gifts and unique calls and unique ways to reflect the character of God, the queer character of God. Wonderful ways that we would be remiss not to receive. I believe our body suffers. The body of Christ is less when we can't open our eyes and hearts wide enough to receive those gifts. So where do we go from here? I'm just going to end with a few hopes for us. First, I invite you to examine the ways our thinking about God and the journey of faith have been shaped by the binaries. Maybe this all feels really tough. I get that. It's okay. Nothing, I don't, I don't want anyone to feel like this is something that they just, you know, you've just totally undone my whole faith. I'm not asking for that. I am asking you to consider how heteronormativity may have shaped the way you think about God, what it means to follow God. And what would it mean to have space to think about things outside the binary? Could we make some space like that? So first is just examining the ways we've been shaped. Second, be willing to center and listen to more stories that challenge the binaries. Stories like Leanne's from the video. Stories like folks in our own community who have a different story to tell. In two weeks, Marcia Stevens will be here sharing her story of what it has meant for her to live out her life um, and be, experience extreme exclusion from the church as a worship leader who is also a lesbian. Are we able to hear those stories? For those of us who that is not our story. So if it's particularly challenging for you, that's where I invite you to lean in and try to create a space, read, listen, from a posture of empathy, that we might allow God to speak to us as those binaries are challenged. And that's where I would say third, we invite God's spirit to continue to do a new thing amongst us. And here's where it's real, even if that's costly. Even if it's costly. We have to be willing to ask, how is Jesus inviting us to stand like he did with the eunuchs of his day? I'm going to be real. Starting a church that named from the beginning that we were going to be LGBTQ inclusive has not been easy. It has cost me a lot, personally. It has meant that the people who raised me in the faith now call me a heretic in some cases, that I can no longer be welcome to worship with them. But 
Megan DeFranza, I think, says this really well, the theologian. You don't get to have it both ways. You don't get to have solidarity with the marginalized and popularity with the powerful. You don't get to have solidarity with the marginalized and popularity with the powerful. It doesn't work like that. Jesus wasn't popular with the powerful either. That gives me a lot of encouragement. But here's the other thing. Standing, even when it's costly, in solidarity and being a part of the new thing means we get to find Jesus with us in the place of standing with the marginalized, bearing witness to the new things God is doing. I, at this point, have seen enough that I know that every cost, it's like I would choose it again a thousand times. For every queer person, I have seen experience um, the power of finding a home. It's worth it. And Jesus is there in this unique way that now I feel like the rest of the church that's not there, they're missing this beautiful, gorgeous, amazing thing that the Spirit of God is doing right now. And I feel honored to be a part of it.